and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker Whitelaw, and here is my co host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So, this week we are finally discussing The North Water, a TV miniseries based on the historical novel by Ian McGuire. Set in the 1850s, it stars Jack O'Connell as a young surgeon who joins the crew of an Arctic whaling ship. Colin Farrell co stars as Henry Drax, the crew's ruthless and sadistic harpooner. In the grand tradition of all Arctic dramas, the expedition goes horribly wrong. Yes, indeed. So we had promised to discuss this a couple of months ago and have been delaying it because various things coming out in our film festival episodes and whatnot got in the way, but we are finally talking about it this week. This had been on both of our radars for a while because it was directed by the director Andrew Haig, who I am a big fan of and stars actors that we love. And you are a connoisseur of (laughs) all media involving people going into the Arctic and having a terrible time. Yes. And it kind of was buried Certainly in America, it aired on AMC Plus, which is like a boutique streaming service that zero people have. I got a free trial to watch it. It did air on the BBC in the UK, but it doesn't seem to have gotten much attention, just like period. It is very gruesome and dark, which I think is part of the problem. But I found it completely excellent, so I'm kind of bummed yeah, I mean, it's a great show, but I kind of understand why it's not received the same cultural footprint as The Terror. Um, I love The Terror because I love that sort of thing, as Morgan said. But that show was a bit more sort of conventional in terms of the interplay and the relationships between the main characters. And although this is going to sound wild to people who have seen The Terror and have not seen this show, The Terror is like more uplifting because <laughs> you have sort of positive parts of the story and even though it's this horrible tragedy which involves a lot of trauma there's like male bonding and stuff and this show is a lot more kind of literary in tone and it's like really bleak and brutal and it's extremely rare for me to actually enjoy something that's that's this bleak because there's so much kind of mediocre media that relies upon darkness and grittiness and violence without actually being good And this is just like, it's such a high quality piece of drama, just like across the board artistically, that it doesn't need that sort of leavening that I feel like less impressive dark shows do. It doesn't really require like humor. Well, I also think that this show is really centrally concerned with like what it means to be a good person. Yeah, I mean, this is a a very thematic way, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of, like, not very good media is like, what does it mean to be good? But this is actually, like, deeply asking that question. So even though it is incredibly dark and, like, often just very depressing, and doesn't necessarily end on, like, an upbeat note, although we will not spoil the ending until the end of the podcast, I didn't find it nihilistic because it is always asking that question of like, how do we act in a moral way? So that was what kept it sort of watchable to me, right? Because it wasn't just like, everyone is horrible. And like, life sucks, right? Like, also, it's really well paced, right? Because it's a five episode miniseries. They like move a fast clip, because 
Um, as Morgan said, no spoilers. Um, we know this is something a lot of listeners probably won't have watched yet, so we'll talk in general terms for the first part of the podcast and discuss spoilers later on. But, um, you know, like the first episode, they're like, okay, we're going to introduce all these characters, we're going to get them into the ocean. And then like by episode two, they're like, we're, tr- we're stuck in the Arctic, you know? <laughs> well, the director, Andrew Haig, in interviews, like he is uh, a filmmaker. He His first film that I'm aware of, he may have made some like tiny, tiny indies before this, but the first film that was released in the US certainly was this small indie called Weekend around 10 years ago that is one of my favorite movies of the past, you know, 10 years-ish, which is a kind of like gay before sunrise movie. I think is how it's usually described. It takes place in Manchester, England, I think. And that is very funny and like just charming and he also made the film 45 Years, starring Charlotte Rampling. She got nominated for an Oscar for that. He made a movie called Lean on Pete that I did not care for as much. And then he also was one of the uh, executive producers and directed a lot of the TV show Looking on HBO. So he has done TV before, but he's primarily a filmmaker. And he described this as like a five-hour movie, basically. And I normally get really peeved when people who are working in television who normally make movies are like, well, actually, it's just like a 25 episode film or whatever. But in this case, because it is pretty short, like the episodes are definitely broken up in a smart way, like they end suspensefully. But it kind of does just feel like a five hour thing. I mean, this is a this is a (laughs) miniseries. I will not I will not accept any of this five hour movie malarkey. (laughs) I mean, what I think is like, I could completely understand how it would feel that way, given that they, as we will discuss, like went to the Arctic in a like totally insane way to shoot it. All the quotes about them making this are like bananas. Like I just, everyone who is involved in the film industry is just like has a screw loose, in my opinion. Like, yeah. Oh my god. I mean, we like many people have a somewhat derisive attitude to a lot of actors who go overboard with method acting but usually part of the problem is it's one person who comes across as a really inconsiderate and self-absorbed co-worker who's like being shitty towards the people who are in the same creative position and in this one it really seems like every single person involved was like yeah we're all on board with this so it's kind of fine like they're all just like let's sail around in the freezing cold in the arctic circle and then just accept that. It's like, well, you know what? All right. Everyone's the same. You all are making these like bizarre and terrible decisions. <laughs> yeah. But because it clearly, again, like obviously like I was consuming this as television. The episodes do have like clear episode breaks. But I think what distinguishes it from the terror in my mind, which like we did an episode on that, like it was like aired like four years ago, the first season. And I clearly was just in a bad mood because like I, w- I watched the first three episodes and was like, I hate this. And then did watch that whole first season a year or two ago. And I liked it a lot, but that feels way more like television to me than yeah. this in the sense that it is structured in a more like I think it's very good but it is structured in a more classical way and this is just not concerned with like traditional television storytelling at all which I think is probably what he's thinking when he's like well I just made a five-hour thing right yeah I mean for me although it's, it's kind of a weird comparison perhaps but as a historical drama it's kind of in the portrait of a lady on fire zone rather than the pride and prejudice zone 
I mean, that's an amazing comparison. It would not have occurred to me. <laughs> Just to but, include some girl references in this very masculine episode we're doing. <laughs> yeah, there are, I mean, maybe like one actress appears for five seconds in this show, but basically, basically not very many. Yeah, I mean, part of what I found pleasurable about this is the degree to which he has so obviously thought through what it would actually be like to be alive at this time, which I think a lot of people making historical dramas or writing historical fiction have not. And specifically with this piece, what distinguishes it from something like the terror or most Arctic dramas, which are usually about people being like, we're going to find the North Pole or whatever. These are just people on a whaling ship. They're like, we got to make some money. (laughs) So they're all like thoroughly working class, even the people who are in charge of the ship, right? Like, and their only objective is like, we got to make some money. And then you thought you like, it's clear that there's some something going on with the captain that's a bit shady, but there's no glamour to this whatsoever on any level. And I just found that really, really refreshing. Like, this is just, this is not a romanticized vision of English history, right? Like, no. It's extremely <laughs> stinky and gross as well, which is yeah. really, really the vibe you'd want for um, a whaling ship. I mean, just to give like a very brief introduction to what whalers did, I think people are more kind of familiar with American whaling, thanks to Moby Dick, just um, injecting everyone's minds with a passion for that for 200 years but I imagine there's not much difference with the British whaling industry. Kind of the main background of this book and show is that it's like a ship that's sailing out of Hull, which was like one of the big whaling hotspots in the UK. And people who worked on these ships, like essentially there was a possibility you just wouldn't get paid. You would sign up to get on the ship and then you would basically stay in the ocean until you found a whale or like ran out of the energy to survive and came home. And if you got a whale, you might get paid quite a lot because you're getting a percentage of the profits. And like you're, this was like a key source of oil for like loads of cosmetics and fuel and stuff. But if you didn't get a whale, you'd basically just like wasted two years of your life on the worst experience ever. <laughs> the boats were not big, which kind of I'd forgotten until I watched this show. And I was like, holy shit, this is like a small ship. Like it's not, it's not big. There's not very many people on there. And the way they would do this is they'd basically just wander around until they found a whale. And then you'd send little boats out into the sea and individual people on those boats would like throw a harpoon into the whale until the whale had a few harpoons in it. And then they'd basically just like follow the whale with these really long ropes stuck into its body until it bled to death and died of exhaustion. And then they'd get onto it and stab it. So this is not a high tech operation. It's completely horrible and disgusting. And uh, that's kind of the basic setting for a show which is even more horrible or disgust and disgusting. <laughs> well, this show also shows them like clubbing a lot of seals to yeah. death. Yeah. In graphic fashion. Like if you are a person who does not want to see animals hurt, you should not. Yeah, this watch is like this. the <laughs> most like they were fully just killing just stacks and stacks of seals. Yeah. And the protagonist of the show, played by Jack O'Connell, is a doctor, so he's on the ship to be the doctor, and kind of, like, volunteers, but is also, like, slightly bullied to participate in the, like, seal clubbing to, like, prove his masculinity, and he's just like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's, like, not really capable of this at all. 
compared to Colin Farrell, who is yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I thought about him is, like, it's not like he's a total wuss. Like, it's not like he is no. incapable, which would be sort of the more predictable narrative choice, right? Because as a protagonist, he's a fish-out-of-water character. He's this guy who was in the British colonial armies um, and has, like, a dark past where he kind of helped to colonize India and then fucked up partly due to like an evil superior officer. So now he like doesn't really have any career options, which is why he's running away to sea. And I think the more conventional choice would be to be like, oh, here's this sort of guy who doesn't really have that many life skills and is like really standing out and is awkward or perhaps there's a really obvious class divide. And they don't really do that as much because like they make it clear like he does actually have life experiences, even though he's quite young. He does have survival skills. Like obviously he's never been to the Arctic before, but he's not completely useless and he is completely inured to blood and gore because he was a military surgeon. So there is a contrast between him and the rest of the crew. Like he is far more educated and intellectual, but like the actual real meaningful contrast is between him and the other protagonist, Henry Drax, who is, this performance is incredible. I mean, I don't know, are we going to talk about that now or should we talk a bit more about the sort of background of the show? Because Colin Farrell in this is oof. Well, we can talk about the performances, which also ties into the the filming because (laughs) the quotes from Colin Farrell about making this is just like, what? And these are both actors who I just like, love obviously Colin Farrell has been around for a long time one of our best actors and then Jack O'Connell is someone I saw in like several film festival movies six or seven years ago and I was just like he's the future like he's the next big thing and it's kind of taken this long for him to get a big role again and I think he is also he has the less showy part in this miniseries but I think he is also incredible so he's also like I think he picked this because like he likes masculine type narratives and roles but he's usually kind of typecast a bit more in the gangster petty criminal zone uh, whereas this is sort of very different from that he is one of britain's few very successful working class actors and like many actors of that description he originated with the tv show skins which did open auditions (laughs) Um, but yeah he, he kind of has done like a lot of roles that kind of play into his working class background and uh yeah Opposite Colin Farrell here. Very interesting duo. Yeah, I mean, Colin Farrell is playing just this, like, large, terrifying man. There's a quote from him about his preparation, because he gained a lot of weight. Yeah, here it is. I ate a lot and lifted some heavy weights. I looked at Victorian boxers and dockers trying to get the belly and the muscle. It was not done under the supervision of medical professionals at all and was really ill advised. (laughs) Buddy, like, what? (laughs) No. He does look really unrecognizable. He's got a lot of facial hair. And I noticed really early on that the way they shoot him makes him look legitimately like a giant. So I was like, is Colin Farrell like enormous? And I just never knew. And it's like Colin Farrell is like five foot 10 or five foot 11 or something. So like he is a somewhat tall man, but they kind of give the impression of him being this enormous sort of hulking guy and his body language is really good. And just like all of that added together, he's just a very intimidating presence here and kind of the the point of this character is he just like truly has no morals and no warmth of spirit at all. Like he is purely just id. He does whatever he wants. Usually what he wants to do is something violent, sadistic and horrible. 
and he's kind of funny and jovial and that makes it more scary yeah and like he there's one secondary character who he's kind of buddies with and you get why because this other character whose name i can't recall is clearly not very smart and there is a charisma to this guy even though he's clearly evil but it makes sense that he could kind of compel or manipulate people and he's incredibly good at his job so like he is the person who like kills the, the whale that they wind up finding and he's the guy who's the best at murdering the seals um and that's part of the reason that they've got him on the boat in the first place like clearly the people doing the hiring know that he's kind of a problem like it's not a huge secret that this guy is violent and sadistic but like he's the best one at the job right so and also like the people who are in charge of these ships like truly just don't give a shit about the working conditions like they already have a business model where they're happy to not pay anyone their crews are essentially disposable hundreds of whaling ships would just go missing so that's kind of built into the career and they're like yeah if we just put this person who's potentially a serial killer on the ship who cares right and then he's at contrast to the jack o'connell character who is a doctor and, as you said, has this past where he was in India as part of the British Army. I mean, he was a doctor, but there's an implication that, like, he was involved in something that wasn't great, which gets revealed later in the show. And I thought that those flashbacks were probably the least successful part of the show. Not that they were terrible. It was just like, I was like, oh, right, you didn't have all the money that you wanted. And so there's like some yellow lighting and you're like in a studio somewhere. Yeah. But what I thought worked about that was that you wind up finding out that kind of the bad thing that happened, which again, like we won't say exactly what it is, but is kind of like more the fault of this senior officer he had who was the like really bad guy. And in his mind, he's kind of like, well, it's all that guy's fault. And you're like, well, you also were like in the colonizing army in India and like doing this stuff that was not great. And the show never totally resolves that tension in a way that I couldn't tell whether it was completely intentional or whether the show kind of is just sympathetic to him on that front. But I found that tension really productive because I think you are supposed to be broadly very sympathetic to this character who's clearly the most moral person on this ship. But there's also this kind of issue that he can't quite get over from the past, right? And it it totally makes sense that like we all want to kind of self-justify the stuff that we've done that's like maybe not great. And he's also... His background is that he's Irish and he's kind of from this working class background. And so you have all of these kind of interactions with empire that are coming together in this person in this kind of messy way that doesn't completely resolve satisfactorily. But I just found it really fascinating and kind of liked that the show didn't ultimately have like a solution. And again, whether or not that was intentional, I don't know, but I didn't really care because I felt that non-solution was almost more interesting. But what winds up happening with this character is that he's clearly trying to sort of figure out how to be a a good person, right? But he's in this environment where like, that's, there's not really a premium on that because no one else gives a shit. And the sort of big plot thing that happens in the first few episodes and 
if you don't want to know like any more plot than what we've already said, you should probably stop listening at this point. Though again, we won't get into like the end end until later. Is that one of the sailors comes to him with an injury and it turns out that he has been like violently raped, which obviously is the doctor. He can tell that that's the case. And I watched this now like months ago because we've delayed this so long. And I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but I mean, basically he, um, this is like the kid of the cabin boy. So it's like a teenager and he tries to get this kid to like, tell him what happened. Um, and obviously he's not going to do that. So his next step is to go to the captain and he kind of reports to this to the captain is like we need to investigate there's a rapist on board and the captain is simultaneously like he's really disgusted but he's sort of subtextually a bit unwilling to get into this but he agrees that it's time to investigate and the way this investigation progresses is just like the main guy kind of knows what's going on but none of them have ever really thought of the psychology of like how to handle a rape investigation because they're all men in 1850s britain <laughs> Uh, so like first of all it's like you've just told the captain without his permission but of course because like you tell the captain everything without people's permission because you're basically subhuman as like the cabin boy on a ship they kind of immediately this spreads through the whole crew and the captain is like kind of looking into this but decides that like he can't really find this person and Colin Farrell's character Henry Drax and his evil little sidekick immediately point the finger at like the one officially gay guy on board because there's some guy who they knew was like sleeping with a man on, a, on another ship and this is just like some rando man and he kind of admits to it he's like yes like i'm gay but obviously only consensually and with adults so please stop accusing me of this and of course none of these people have any time for this because like that's not something they can conceive of because once again they're all men in 1850s <laughs> soon after that the cabin boy turns up dead so it becomes a murder investigation and one of like the things that um the doctor turns up in the post-mortem is there are signs of a struggle and the boy had venereal disease. So whoever attacked him must also have venereal disease. So when he checks the gay guy, there's no evidence of disease or a struggle. And then he also, after a bit of a kind of conflict, is like, I want to check Henry Drax because this guy is suspicious as hell and is like trying to accuse other people. So there's this fantastic scene where like Colin Farrell strips naked and is like, basically just using his naked body to intimidate the doctor and it's like so gross and scary uh, but they also find no evidence there and in the end we find out that Drax is at the very least guilty of killing this teenager because they find the cabin boy's tooth is embedded in his arm <laughs> so is this little like there's an episode that's just like CSI Victorian ship <laughs> yeah and as this progresses, the captain becomes just like increasingly unwilling to deal with this. Yeah. He's like, I didn't all, sign right? up for this. Yeah. There's not functionally anything we can do. So at first they're like, well, we'll imprison the gay guy in the hold. And once it's become like incontrovertibly obvious that Colin Farrell, Henry Drax is guilty, they then imprison him in the hold. But it's like, so now you're going to be like searching for whales for years but your best like harpooners in prison. And also at the same time, the captain has made a secret agreement with his ba boss back on the mainland to like crash this ship for insurance money. So his kind of dueling priorities are 
either do I try and get the biggest haul ever and prove myself as a captain because like he's not a very good captain or do I obey my boss and like scupper this ship and potentially kill some people and now this whole rape trial is like complicating his little scheme here and then of course they reach the arctic circle properly and uh, the ship gets into horrifying weather related difficulties and the ship ends up sinking although not purely naturally because by this point the person in charge is Henry Drax's horrible sidekick because he has murdered the captain. And like when he goes down to the hold to be like, Henry, come out onto the ice with the rest of us, like we're leaving the ship. Henry kind of encourages him to just sink the ship. So they're now free from the constraints of having a ship and they are stranded in the Arctic Circle on like an iceberg. <laughs> Which is Great, you know, like everyone's dream. Most of them have no survival skills. Oh, and I can't believe we forgot one of the key elements of this show, which is the protagonist is a laudanum addict. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> which, yeah, a problem when you're stuck. For the first couple of episodes, you're like stressing out because it's like he's hiding his addiction, but he is in charge of all the drugs on board. But what if someone steals all the drugs? And then, you know, he just ends up being stuck on an iceberg and the drugs are with another part of the crew. So like he has to go cold turkey while also potentially dying of frostbite with a bunch of strangers that he hates. <laughs> yeah, you've summed all that up uh, very effectively. And then everybody basically knows what's going on because he's just completely like yeah. having a He's just like suddenly just like vomiting for, for no reason. Yeah. And the one nice person, there's like a couple of nice people in this, but like there's this older guy who I think is maybe Danish who's this quite spiritual and uh, like experienced older man who's kind of taking care of him. And that guy's a sweetie and everyone else is like a monster or by this point, dead. Right. So before we get to the plot of the second half, I just found all the stuff to do with this sort of rape investigation. I mean, upsetting, obviously, but completely fascinating because, I mean, this book was came out several years ago. So this predates the sort of last few years of this being sort of top of mind for a lot of people. But it both combines our like recent cultural fascination with these kind of like Me Too questions. But it's investigating how this would be handled, you know, basically 200 years ago. Yeah. And in a setting where the sort of like cultural stereotype of like sailors, especially from the past is like, ha ha ha, everyone was gay. And obviously, like, that was an environment where a lot of men did go to sort of, like, be free of the demands of society. But what this sort of reminds you is that the dominant power structures in these environments are still the same as everywhere else, yeah. right? And so, and I mean, one of the key crimes here is not rape so much as sodomy. So it's like all, yes. everything that qualifies as sodomy is like, there's like a whole host of different things, both consensual and non-consensual. And they're all just like rolled into the same thing. And the problem is like, we have to like hunt down the sodomite on the boat. Yeah. And the like, com just complete inability of people to sort of like cope with this, I just found so interesting. And then you have, and then on the other hand, the main character who isn't some like wildly enlightened person. Like, as you said, he immediately goes to the captain and is like, there's this thing going on, but is quite sympathetic to everyone. And when this gay man is just like assumed to be the perpetrator because, oh, well, he's gay. He's like, well, like, no, this clue doesn't make any sense. And then that character is quite grateful to him. So you have 
an example of a character who feels like quite persuasively historically, it, it feels totally believable that he would behave in this way, especially as a doctor, like he's probably seen some stuff, right? But not in a context where he like has a 21st century understanding of everything, as opposed to basically everybody else on the boat who just is like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, we just can't It's also this, right? very much like part of his outsider status as well, because it's like everyone's moral background comes from a certain place and stuff that one person finds immoral or scandalous will not be the same as someone else who had a drastically different life and in this context he is kind of more objective about what's happening here because like he isn't fully embedded in the lifestyle of being in a whaling ship so he is still at the point where he's like there's a lot of stuff that you're doing here which is like horrifying brutal cruel upsetting and disgusting and having gay sex is like way below all of that other stuff including (laughs) the fact that like clearly there's like people on board who are like murderers but that's like deprioritized within this society and he is kind of just looking at it from this outsider perspective of like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) yeah it's also interesting obviously for this to be coming from a queer filmmaker because obviously andrew hay is like several of his works have been like about gay men and relationships just like the way the show is set up like obviously there's this kind of subplot which is about like homophobia and sexual assault and masculine power structure but also even in the first episode you have characters sort of casually mentioning the idea that this british war hero in india was gay and but that just kind of comes up in casual conversation and i feel like that's relatively rare in historical dramas because like either there just like won't be any kind of acknowledgement of the idea of like queerness or there'll be like the one gay character or subplot and here it's like yeah these are like men of the world quote unquote of course they like know there are a bunch of people who are gay out there in their immediate society and they're like completely freely making jokes about it because unless you're living like a really sheltered puritanical lifestyle you are going to be aware of this and these guys especially are going to be aware of this i found the whole thing really interesting from the perspective of like why did andrew haig want to make this and he's made again like he's made a wide variety of things like 45 years the charlotte rampling movie as far as i can recall like that's not a component of that film but watching this like when that plot happened i was like well i understand why he wanted to make this movie like or this show it like it's a just different approach to these kinds of things that i've seen before and the whole piece even when that part of the plot kind of proceeds to the background is so centrally interested in these ideas of like masculinity and ethics in a way that feels not that no one has ever explored these topics before obviously but it's still not that common for them to be sort of probed with this level of thoughtfulness I think I mean, you've really, you're really just describing here another reason why this show was extremely hard to market in addition to like being yes. on this rando channel because, yeah. okay, it's a historical sailing show, which is something that like a lot of people are into, but also it's very intensely kind of about masculinity. It's really upsetting and intense. It's also a crime thriller and a survival thriller. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But let's move on to the second part of the show, which is more superficially more in the traditional, like, men stuck in the Arctic and, like, the clock is ticking, right? So, like, they're in these tents and the food's running out. Clearly, they're all going to start dying, which is what happens. And the Jack O'Connell character, whose name I continue 
to forget. Sumner. Yes, Sumner is now kind of in charge because everyone else is just having a complete meltdown, which, I mean, fair enough. And he keeps being like, we have to keep going on these, like, long walks because otherwise we're going to, like, freeze to death. And they're all just like, no. (laughs) I thought that was a really interesting detail because it's like, yeah, he literally does have military discipline. He has gone through a rigorous Victorian education and then has been in the military. And obviously I'm not, like, endorsing that lifestyle, but it means that he has the sort of brain pathways to understand how to organize a bunch of people to do something in a regimented way. And these guys, like, don't have that because their entire job is to, like, just be on this ship and do what they're told for several months at a time. Yep. And so people start dying and then you have this situation where these um, indigenous people show up and they obviously have to try to bargain with them because they are capable of hunting in this environment and these like British people have no idea what the fuck they're doing. And that component is way less foregrounded in this show than in the terror, which is one of the things I think that the terror does really well. But I think this show also handles very well the differing approaches of various characters to interacting with these people. So like Sumner, Jack O'Connell is like, we have to just, we have to bargain with them. Like we have to get them to hunt seals for us. And the like sidekick to Henry Drax is just like a horrible racist, obviously, and just tries to like bully them. And they're kind of like, what? Like, And again, like there's not a ton of that, but I thought it was handled really well. And they do wind up making a bargain. And ultimately Drax, like <laughs> the sidekick winds up like setting Drax free so that they can like escape on the boat with them. And then Drax murders these people. <laughs> And goes off by himself, which yeah. is like the most predictable thing. Yeah, of course. It's like he's he's always out for himself. And that kind of leaves Sumner with a dwindling number of people. And eventually it's just him and his pal, the old Scandinavian guy. And uh, that leads into like one of the best scenes in the show where at this point they're like, they're abandoned hope. He's, he leaves his camp. He's the only survivor we've got left in this narrative now, which is like, it's like episode four or five or something. So like this, this show like travels fast. There's this great quote that Morgan found from a Guardian interview where it's like, I asked O'Connell about a scene steeped in pain and madness where having killed a polar bear, he climbs into her warm guts and lies inside its skin waiting for death. I have no prior experience, obviously, of being devoured, he says sensibly. So I thought, okay. And then he raises his eyes, his brows set with a familiar gravity. Let's make this sexy. And then he cracks up. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, the only thing I could think about watching this was the similar scene in The Revenant, where Leonardo DiCaprio climbs inside of a bear to sleep, which was much discussed at the time. Truly, these shows wish they were Star Wars. So, yeah. I just watching this was like, okay, so who who made like who are the people who made The Revenant have watched the show and did they just feel like embarrassed for themselves? Like what <laughs> Because The Revenant is bad and in this Jack O'Connell like shoots and kills this polar bear and like pulls out some of its guts and then just like paints the blood all over his like body and then is just like screaming <laughs> Climbs inside. I mean, it is remarkable. Just like a lot going on. I commend him for his efforts. 
And then like the final act is after he miraculously survives this, he's rescued by some of the locals who take him to a priest who lives in this little house. And he's played by everyone's favourite Scottish character actor, Peter Mullen. He has an incredible threatening aura, but in this he's just playing like a fairly nice priest. Yeah, okay, he's moved to the North Pole because he wants to try and convert the locals. (laughs) But he's not as bad as a lot of the people that Jack O'Connell's been living with. And he sort of nurses him back to health. And at this point, Patrick Sumner has like basically had a nervous breakdown. He's not saying what his name is or what his history is because he's like, I've died and been reborn. I don't give a fuck anymore. Just very, very understandably. Well, I wanted to mention that the Peter Mullen character has a tumor of some kind and Sumner, who's kind of been like, I guess I'm a doctor, like what even am I anymore? But he has to do surgery on him and you see he's like incredibly competent and good at his job. And he has several monologues in this episode where he's kind of like regaining his personhood that I think are some of the best acting O'Connell does in the show. But also, again, like really gets to this question of like, what does it mean to be a good person? And like, how do you live ethically? And he goes out on several hunting parties with the Inuits and Peter Mullen is like, they're so primitive and like, they won't listen to me when I talk about Christianity. And Sumner's like, uh, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like they seem fine. Like, And it's this real kind of, I think th- this episode is just, I mean, the whole show, we haven't talked about the technical stuff so much because there's a lot of plot to kind of get through in one episode, but everything about the craft of this show is incredible and meticulous. Like the cinematography is unbelievable, but I think it, is shown off particularly in this episode because so much of the rest of the show is just like this grim, bleak, like misery. And this is the one part where the character is sort of meeting the world again. So it's a bit more beautiful. There's one monologue he has in particular talking to this priest in this episode. Like I just found it incredibly affecting and moving. And I was thinking too about what you mentioned about O'Connell being really typecast as these kind of like tough type characters like he's played I feel like multiple boxers like there's just like a lot of that thing going on and it's not that he's bad in those roles like the first thing I saw him in was this movie Startup where he was it was like a prison movie and he was great in that but I just thought he was so great in this show playing someone who's obviously had these tough experiences but is thinking so hard in a like quite sophisticated way about what he's gone through and about these like deeper questions. And when he gets to do these longer monologues in this episode, like he's just fantastic at it. And I think as a like individual, like as a not the character, like I think he's really smart. So I was really glad to be like, all right, you can do other stuff that's not just like punching people. Like that's nice to see. Yeah, I mean, it's, easy to see how he's wound up in this sort of niche for multiple reasons like part of it is like just typecasting and part of it is just the attitude he gives off in interviews is very much like he he loves it like obviously he wants to do a wide range of roles and he is a very interesting performer but also he loves to go hard (laughs) like there's another amazing quote that Morgan found for this where it's like 
It's a quote from Andrew Hay where he's like, with any actor, you try to work out what they need from you as a director. Some actors want to be looked after, others want to be pushed. Jack wants to be hurled into the air without a crash mat. If I am something of a sadist for sending us to the freezing Arctic in the pursuit of authenticity, then he's undoubtedly a masochist when it comes to crafting his performance. He is so deeply committed to finding the gnarly truth of a moment. <laughs> and then in yeah. one of the other like interviews he talks about, he like would throw himself into the sea because like loads of the actors were doing this as a sort of fun exercise where they jump into the freezing ocean. And he was kind of implying that like some of the people who didn't do this were wusses. And it's like kind of suspect that like Colin Farrell didn't do this. Colin Farrell, who obviously is like 15 years older, one of his key anecdotes from this, apart from the fact that like he gained a ton of weight and made his own hands bleed because he refused to wear gloves because his character wouldn't wear gloves. In addition to that, it's like he and one of the other lead actors are recovering alcoholics. So they like were not drinking at all. And they were on like this small boat with an all-male crew where they had like a bar every night. So all of the rest of the cast were getting drunk every night. And then Colin Farrell and this other actor were just kind of in their room watching Downton Abbey or whatever. And they were like, well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> great, great experience here. <laughs> yeah. Well, O'Connell is funny because he was like a wild child. Yeah. I mean, there are interviews about this. And then did, what was it, Unbroken with Angelina Jolie? He was like, she basically was my like guiding star to like becoming an adult and I saw him at a Q&A for that movie and he was just like the most charismatic person I have ever seen in person in my entire life and she was also there and was just like covering her face when he talked because he was just you he couldn't be stopped but then like I listened to an interview with him about this and he was like very very thoughtful and was like yeah I read this book the siege of siege of Krishnapur to prepare which is like a very serious novel about like Indian colonization. I mean, it's a satire, but like, it's a work of art. And I was like, you know what? Great. It's also like, there's a big gap between like being a really famous, like 22 year old and being a less famous 30 year old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I feel like they're kind of both things going on a little bit. Um, and if you want to make some punching movies, that's fine. But like, I would appreciate if Hollywood would do a little bit more with him. I also think he's got quite a thick accent and I do not think he is good at doing other accents. So that is a bit I think that's part of what's going on. In any case, I thought he was great in this, particularly this last episode. But what winds up happening here is that you have this first half of the episode that's really kind of about this character, like, healing. And <laughs> he goes back to England and it kind of goes downhill because he goes to get his payment from the owner of this whaling company, who is immediately just very suspicious and... It turns out that he, like, has Henry Drax, like, in an attic somewhere. The Victorian vibes were at their strongest in the finale oh, of this. <laughs> great. <laughs> great stuff. And then also sends, like, his, like, one of his servants off to kill both of them. Like, it's just this convoluted thing. They wind up having this confrontation in, like, a warehouse somewhere. Again, very sort of arch-Victorian. Classic stuff. Drama. And Colin Farrell is really at his most terrifying like stalking you through a warehouse with his huge muscles and belly. <laughs> like, scary man. But Sumner winds up killing him and then he goes back to the guy who owns the, owned the ship and then murders him too, which is like not really necessary. Yeah, he kills him because he's like, I've had, you know, I've been traumatized and everyone on my ship died. So he murders him, steals a bunch of his money, leaves. And then like the final scene of the show is him having moved to Germany, started a new life. 
He's now like a relatively well-off man and he's just at the zoo visiting a polar bear behind bars. The end. (laughs) Great image. I mean, again, like I really like that it ends with him committing this like quite understandable but unnecessary act of violence, right? Like he has many reasons to be very angry at this person. And I wasn't like, oh, I'm so disappointed with you. But it's because the whole show is about these questions of ethics, it is kind of like, well, this is not the right thing to do, even if this guy is a piece of shit, right? And so you see him at the very end in these fancy clothes and walking around, and it's like, well, now you have, like, money, but... Although maybe it is the right thing to do, because, like, they make it really clear that this guy is never going to be punished by law and is just going to keep on running his, like, crooked whaling company and probably killing more people. So, like, you know, who can say? It's true. He doesn't seem like he's having a great time at the end there. No, no. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he's sort of associated with polar bears throughout the show. So the fact that he's looking at a polar bear who's, like, miserable in, like, a Berlin zoo in 1850-whatever, which means, like, just sitting on some concrete, looking really dirty and unhappy. It's like, oh. Yeah, so it doesn't end on, like, an up note. But despite our description of the many horrors that take place in this show, I still didn't find it, as I said, like, I didn't find it nihilistic because it is so interested in those questions of ethics, right? Yeah, and also you've got really compelling actors and performances because... Yes. I'm trying to think of like stuff I've watched recently that was just like unrelentingly grim and nothing's immediately coming up. But when I watched Why the Last Man to review it a few months ago, like the show is pretty good. Like it has issues. There's obviously like a lot of kind of controversy over the concept. But like just when I was watching it, I was like, okay, I'm giving it like a relatively positive review with some caveats. And I'm never going to watch any of the more episodes because it's just like depressing. It's just like, here's the apocalypse. And it just like keeps on being the apocalypse for the entire show. Yep. And that's just kind of depressing. And there's nothing, it's not like sophisticated enough to hold my interest. Whereas this is. And also it's only yes. five episodes long. <laughs> Well, I think that's a huge part of it. And like when we mentioned that we were going to do this now a few months ago, because it's been so delayed, I thought it was interesting that we had several people reply and be like, I hated this. Or like, I watched the first episode or two and like, I just, it was unwatchable. And like, obviously different strokes, you know, that's fine. But we don't usually get that response about anything. (laughs) Well, it's the first time we've reviewed a show that involves people clubbing seals to death. (laughs) This is very true. But I do think there is something about And again, like, I liked the terror a lot, and I thought that show was good. But I think having watched this, it sort of revealed to me how much of the terror was actually pretty conventional, which is not an insult. Like, I think that's totally fine. And I think that show was very well made and engaging with, like, interesting ideas that don't often get depicted on television. So, like, that's great. But I think part of the reason that show has remained so popular is that it's sort of probing at tough stuff while also giving you the comforts of yeah narrative right whereas this is like no like we're not gonna do that but because it's only five hours long like for me that's fine because it's not asking you to watch 25 hours of something where you're like i know everyone's gonna die basically and like and each episode has kind of like different settings as well because it's like yes that means you can have like one episode that's in hull and then one that's like on the ship and then another that's kind of like one part of the Arctic landscape. And it's all shot absolutely gorgeously, um, which was something of an issue for the terror because 
like a lot of that was filmed on sets and stuff and it's like I completely yeah. understand that like obviously I'm not saying you have to like film at the North Pole but um you know it, it just felt like very real and immersive yeah I mean I think in the interviews they said this is basically the first time anything's been shot that far north like they were in Svalbard basically and I was like well maybe there's a reason that no one else has done this because it's fucking crazy like this is not you are like endangering people but as you said they all were clearly like yes like we are so pumped to be doing this and everyone was fine so that's that's good but the effect of that and when you're watching it is that it is absolutely visually stunning both in terms of like the framing and also just like the landscapes that you're seeing is not stuff that most of us ever get to see so part of the pleasure of it even if the like what was going on was quite grim like there is a like aesthetic pleasure in getting to see that stuff I think for me and just like the you know music and everything also good sea shanties at the end of all the episodes which I was like great you know (laughs) so yeah I certainly would recommend this if you are in the mood for something quite violent and grim so Gabia what are we going to do next week big favorite of overinvested pod gone girl coming next week yes so this is a listener request but this is a movie that we are both big fans of we have in fact watched this movie together (laughs) it's a really fun god this movie is fun yeah zodiac is my favorite fincher movie and this is probably number two i think zodiac is probably david fincher's best movie but this is probably my favorite i mean he's got david fincher like he's got a really strong batting average i also really like fight club He's also done some which are silly. Uh, I think people listen to our episode on the, on the social network, a film we both find highly amusing. But yeah, Gone Girl, adapted from a novel which I don't think I've read, starring Rosamund Pike and Ben Affleck. Very fun acting in this. I have read Gone Girl, so I will be able to provide book context, though I've read it like many years ago so i do not remember it vividly perfect time for us to talk about ben affleck since he is very much in the news and we just discussed him in the last duel and yeah this is just a perennial favorite of many people i think so this will be fun and it'll be perfectly timed for i think next week is when rosamund pike's new tv show starts the extremely expensive amazon fantasy series wheel of time About which I will say nothing because the press embargo was still up. I mean, I can say that I read a lot of those books when I was around 14 (gasps) years old. Did you? Yeah, my one of my best friends in middle school and I read a bunch of them. And it's one of those things you look back at and you're like, that is so many hours of my life (laughs) that I just can't get back. Those books, so not respected, not respected. No, very, very (laughs) bad. We just kept reading them and we're like, it was sort of like a weird compulsion. And then finally we both just were like, these are so awful. Like, why are we still doing this? <laughs> so the fact that they've spent all this money on that show is um, an interesting choice. So look forward to all of that. Um, if you would like to support us on Patreon or sponsor an episode, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. 
And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at MLDavies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.